0: CHAPTER Five, JOHN WESLEY, THE MAN The second person on the list of English Reformers of the eighteenth century whose history I want to consider is a man of worldwide reputation, the famous John Wesley. The name of this great evangelist is probably better known than that of any of his fellow laborers a hundred years ago. This, however, is easily explained. He lived to the ripe old age of eighty-eight, and for sixty-five years he was continually before the eyes of the public, doing his master's work in every part of England. He founded a new religious denomination, remarkable to this very day for its numbers, activity, and success, and rightfully grateful for its extraordinary founder. The story of his life has been repeatedly written by his friends and followers, his works have been constantly reprinted, and his precepts and maxims have been reverentially treasured up and preserved like Joseph's bones. In fact, if ever a good Protestant has been practically canonized, it has been John Wesley. It would be strange indeed if his name was not well known. Of such a man as this, I cannot pretend to give more than a brief account in the short space of a few pages. The main facts of his long and well-spent life, and the main characteristics of his distinct character, are all that I can possibly compress into the limits of this memoir. Those who want more must look elsewhere. John Wesley was born on June 17, 1703, at Epworth in North Lincolnshire, of which parish his father was rector, or pastor. He was the ninth of a family of nineteen children, nine died in infancy. The oldest son, Samuel, was for some years director of Westminster School, was a close friend of the famous Bishop Atterbury, and died as headmaster of Tiverton School. The second son, John, was founder of the Methodist communion. The third son, Charles, was John's companion and fellow laborer throughout almost his entire life. John Wesley's father, Samuel, was a man of considerable learning and great activity of mind. As a writer, he was always bringing out something either in prose or in verse, but nothing unhappily which was ever acceptable to the reading public, or is much cared for in the present day. As a politician, he was a zealous supporter of the revolution that brought the House of Orange into power in England, and it was because of this that Queen Mary offered him the Rectory of Epworth. As a clergyman, Samuel Wesley seems to have been a diligent pastor and preacher, and was of the theological school of Archbishop Tillotson. As a manager of his worldly affairs, he appears to have been most unsuccessful. Though paid a fair salary, he was always in financial difficulties, was once in prison for debt, and in the end left his widow and children almost destitute. When I add to this that he was not on good terms with its parishioners, and, as poor as he was, insisted on going up to London every year to attend the very unprofitable meetings of convocation for months at a time, the listener will probably agree with me that, like too many, he was a man of more book-learning and cleverness than good sense. John Wesley's mother, Susanna, was evidently a woman of extraordinary power of mind. She was the daughter of Dr. Annesley, a man well-known to readers of Puritan theology as one of the chief promoters of the 6 volume, Morning Exercises. He was ejected from the parish of St. Giles, Cripplegate, in 1662. Susanna seems to have inherited from her father the sense and strong decided judgment that distinguished her character. It was undoubtedly to the influence of his mother's early training and example that John Wesley was indebted for many of his distinctive habits of mind and qualifications. Her own account of the way in which she educated all her children, in one of her letters to her son John, is enough to show that she was no ordinary woman, and that her sons were not likely to turn out to be ordinary men. She wrote, None of them were taught to read until they were five years old, except Keziah, in whose case I was overruled, and she was more years in learning than any of the rest had been months. The way of teaching was this. The day before a child began to learn, the house was set in order. Everyone's work was appointed to them, and instruction was given that no one should come into the room from nine to twelve, or from two to five, which were our school hours. One day was allowed for the child to learn his letters and each of them did learn all their letters, great and small, in that time, except Molly and Nancy, who were a day and a half before they knew them perfectly, for which I then thought them very dull. However, the reason why I thought them so was because the rest learned so quickly. Your brother Samuel, who was the first child I ever taught, learned the alphabet in a few hours. He was five years old on February the 10th, The next day he began to learn, and as soon as he knew the letters, began at the first chapter of Genesis. He was taught to spell the first verse, then to read it over and over until he could read it easily, without any hesitation. Then we moved on to the second verse, etc., until he took ten verses in a lesson, which he quickly did. He could soon read a chapter very well, for he read continually And had such a prodigious memory that I cannot remember ever having to tell him the same word twice. What was stranger, any word he had learned in his lesson he knew wherever he saw it, either in his Bible or in any other book, by which means he learned very quickly to read an English author well. Susanna's energetic and determined conduct as wife of a parish clergyman is wonderfully illustrated by a letter still existing between herself and her husband on an unusual occasion. It appears that during Mr. Wesley's lengthy absences from home in attending convocation, Mrs. Wesley, dissatisfied with the state of things at Epworth, began the habit of gathering a few parishioners at the rectory on Sunday evenings and reading to them. As might naturally have been expected, the attendance soon became so large that her husband was alarmed at the report he heard, and he made some objections to the practice. The letters of Mrs. Wesley on this occasion are a model of Christian good sense, and deserve the attention of many timid believers in the present day. After defending what she had done with many wise and unanswerable arguments, and asking her husband to consider seriously the bad consequences of stopping the meetings, she concluded with the following remarkable paragraph. If you do, after all, think fit to dissolve this assembly, do not tell me that you desire me to do it, For that will not satisfy my conscience. But send me your positive command, in such full and express terms as may absolve me from all guilt and punishment for neglecting the opportunity of doing good, when you and I shall appear before the great and solemn tribunal of our Lord Jesus Christ. A mother of this kind was just the person to leave deep marks and impressions on the minds of her children we can only find a little trace of the old rector of Epworth in his sons John and Charles, except perhaps in their poetical genius. However, there is much in John's career and character throughout his life that shows the hand of his mother. The early years of John Wesley's life appear to have passed quietly away in his Lincolnshire home. The only remarkable event recorded by his biographers is his marvellous escape from being burned alive when the Epworth rectory was burned down. This happened in 1709, when he was six years old, and seems to have been vividly impressed on his mind. He was pulled through the bedroom window at the last moment by a man who, for lack of a ladder, stood on another man's shoulders. Just at that moment the roof of the house fell in, but fortunately fell inward, and the boy and his rescuer escaped unhurt. He says himself, in his description of the event, When they brought me to the house where my father was, he cried out, Come, neighbors, let us kneel down, let us give thanks to God. He has given me all my eight children. Let the house go. I am rich enough. In the year 1714, when John Wesley was eleven years old, he was placed at the Charterhouse School in London. That mighty step in life, a boy's first entrance at a public school, seems to have done him no harm. He had probably been well-grounded at his father's house in all the basics of a classical education, and he soon became distinguished for his diligence and progress at school. At the age of sixteen, his elder brother, then a leader at Westminster, describes him as a brave boy learning Hebrew as fast as he can. In the year 1720, at the age of seventeen, John Wesley went to Oxford as an undergraduate, having been elected to Christ Church. Little is known of the first three or four years of his university life, except that he was consistent, studious, and remarkable for his classical knowledge and genius for composition. It is evident, however, that he made the best use of his time at college, and he picked up as much as he could in a day when honorary class lists were unknown, and incentives to study were very few. Like most great clergymen, he utilized the advantage of a university education all his life long. Some people might dislike his theology, but they could never say that he was a fool and had no right to be heard. At the beginning of seventeen twenty five, at the age of twenty two, John Wesley seems to have gone through much exercise of mind as to the choice of a profession. Naturally enough, he thought of entering the ministry, but was somewhat daunted by serious reflection on the solemnity of the step. This very reflection, however, appears to have been most useful to him and to have produced in his mind deeper thoughts about God, his soul, and religion in general than he had ever entertained before. He began to study divinity and to go through a regular course of reading for the ministry. He had probably no very trustworthy guide in his choice of religious literature at this period. The books that apparently had the greatest influence on him were Jeremy Taylor's Holy Living and Dying and Thomas Akempis's imitation of Christ. As devout and well-meaning as these authors are, they certainly were not likely to give him very clear views of scriptural Christianity or very cheerful and happy views of serving Christ. Although they did him some good by making him feel that true religion was a serious business and should be a concern of the heart, they evidently left him in much darkness and perplexity. At this stage of John Wesley's life, his correspondence with his father and mother is particularly interesting, and it speaks well of both the parents and the son. He evidently opened his mind to them and told them all his mental and spiritual difficulties. His letters and their replies are well worth reading. They all show more or less absence of spiritual light and clear views of the gospel, but a definite tone of honesty and conscientiousness runs throughout. Reading these letters, one feels that this is just the Spirit that God will bless. This is the single eye to which will be given more light. Let's hear what his Father says about what is the best commentary on the Bible. I answer the Bible itself, for the several paraphrases and translations of it in the polyglot, compared with the original and with one another, are, in my opinion, to an honest, devout, industrious, and humble man infinitely preferable to any commentary I ever saw. Let's hear what his mother says on the point of entering the ministry. The change in your state of mind has occasioned me much speculation. I, who am apt to be optimistic, hope it may proceed from the operation of God's Holy Spirit, and that by taking away your delight for earthly enjoyments, He may prepare and dispose your mind for a more serious and close application to things of a more noble and spiritual nature. If this is so, happy are you if you nourish those dispositions, and now in good sincerity resolve to make religion the business of your life. After all, that is the one thing that, strictly speaking, is necessary. Everything else is comparatively little to the purposes of life. I genuinely wish for you to now enter upon a strict examination of yourself that you may know whether you have a reasonable hope of salvation by Jesus Christ. If you have the satisfaction of knowing, it will abundantly reward your efforts. If you have not, you will find a more reasonable occasion for tears than can be met with in a tragedy. This matter deserves great consideration by all, but especially by those designed for the ministry, who should, above all things, make their own calling and election sure, lest, after they have preached to others, they themselves should be cast away. First Corinthians 9.27 Let's hear what John Wesley's mother says about Thomas A. Kempis's opinion that all mirth or pleasure is useless, if not sinful. She observes I believe Kempis to have been an honest, weak man, who had more zeal than knowledge by condemning all mirth or pleasure as sinful or useless, in opposition to so many direct and plain texts of Scripture. Would you judge of the lawfulness or unlawfulness of pleasures? or of the innocence or enmity of actions? Here is a good rule. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes away the desire for spiritual things, basically whatever increases the strength and authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in itself. Let's hear what John Wesley himself says in a letter on the opinion of Jeremy Taylor. Whether God has forgiven us or not, we know not. Therefore, let us be sorrowful for ever having sinned. Samuel Wesley responded, Surely the graces of the Holy Spirit are not of such little force that we cannot perceive whether we have them or not. If we dwell in Christ and Christ in us, which He will not do unless we are regenerate, certainly we must be sensible of it. If we never can have any certainty of being in a state of salvation, That is a good reason that every moment should be spent not in joy, but in fear and trembling. And then, undoubtedly, in this life, we are of all men most miserable. May God deliver us from such a fearful expectation as this. Correspondence of this kind could hardly fail to do good to a young man in John Wesley's frame of mind. It undoubtedly led him to a closer study of the Scriptures, deeper self-examination, and more fervent prayer. Whatever doubts he may have had were finally removed, and he was ordained a deacon on September 19, 1725, by Dr. Potter, then Bishop of Oxford, and later became Archbishop of Canterbury. In the year 1726, John Wesley was elected Fellow of Lincoln College, after a contest of more than ordinary severity. His recently adopted serious manner and general religiousness were used against him by his adversaries but his high character carried him triumphantly through all opposition, to the great delight of his father. As tested as he apparently was at the time in his earthly circumstances, Samuel Wesley wrote, Whatever will be my own fate before the summer is over, God knows, but wherever I am, my John is fellow of Lincoln. The eight years following John Wesley's election to his Fellowship of Lincoln, from 1726 to 1734 form a remarkable period in his life, and certainly gave a tone and color to all his future history. During all these years he was a resident at Oxford, and for at least some of the time was a tutor and lecturer in his college. Gradually, however, he seems to have laid himself out more and more to try to do good to others, and later was entirely taken up with it. His method of action was in the highest degree simple and unpretentious. Assisted by his brother Charles, who was then a student of Christ Church, he gathered a small society of like minded young men in order to spend some evenings together every week studying the Greek New Testament. This was in November 1729. The members of this society were at first four in number John Wesley, Charles Wesley, Mr. Morgan of Christ Church, and Mr. Kirkman of Merton. Somewhat later they were joined by Mr. Ingham of Queens. Mr. Broughton of Exeter, Mr. Clayton of Brazen Nose, the famous George Whitefield of Pembroke, and the well known James Hervey of Lincoln. This little group of witnesses, as might reasonably have been expected, soon began to think of doing good to others, as well as getting good themselves. In the summer of 1730, they began to visit prisoners in the castle and poor people in the town, to send neglected children to school, to give material aid to the sick and needy, and to distribute Bibles and prayer books among those who did not have them. Their first steps were taken very cautiously, and they frequently asked John Wesley's father for advice. Acting upon his advice, they laid all their activity and plans before the Bishop of Oxford and his chaplain, and did nothing without full ecclesiastical approval. Cautious and almost childish, however, as the proceedings of these young men might appear to us today they were too far in advance of the times to escape notice, hatred, and opposition. A kind of persecution and outcry was raised against Wesley and his companions as enthusiasts, fanatics, and troublers of Israel, 1 Kings 18.17. They were nicknamed the Methodists, or Holy Club, and were assailed with a storm of ridicule and abuse. Through this, however, they bravely persevered and held on their way, being greatly encouraged by the letters of the old pastor of Epworth. The real amount of spiritual good that John Wesley did during these eight years of residence at Oxford is a point that cannot easily be determined. With all his devotedness, asceticism, and self-denial, it must be remembered that at this time he knew very little of the pure gospel of Christ. His views of religious truth, to say the least, were very dim, misty, defective, and weak. No one was more sensible of this than he afterward was himself, and no one could be more ready and willing to confess it. Such books as William Law's Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, Law's Christian Perfection, the anonymous Theologia Germanica, and mystical writers were about the highest level of divinity that he had yet attained. However, we do not need to doubt that he learned experience at this time that he found useful later in life. At any rate, he became thoroughly trained in habits of diligence, hard work, using time wisely, and self-denial, which he carried with him to the day of his death. God has His own way of strengthening and preparing instruments for His work, and no matter what we might think, we can be sure that His way is best. In the year 1734, John Wesley's father died, and the family home was broken up. Just at this time the providence of God opened up a new sphere of duty to him, the acceptance of which had a most important effect on his whole spiritual history. This sphere was the colony of Georgia in North America. The trustees of that infant settlement were greatly in need of proper clergymen to send out, both to preach the gospel to the Indians and to provide means of grace for the colonists. At this juncture, John Wesley and his friends were suggested to them as the most suitable people they could find, due to their high character for regular behavior, attention to religious duties, and willingness to endure hardships. The result of the matter was that an offer was made to John Wesley, and after conferring with his mother, his older brother, William Law, and other friends, he accepted the proposal of the Trustees, and set sail for Georgia with his brother Charles and their mutual friend, Mr. Ingham. Wesley landed in Georgia on February 6, 1736, after a long stormy voyage of four months, and he remained in the colony for two years. I won't take up your time with a detailed account of his time there, but it will suffice to say that for any good he seems to have done his mission was almost useless partly from the inherent difficulties of an English clergyman's position in a colony, partly from the confused and disorderly condition of the infant settlement where he was stationed, partly from an unusual lack of tact and discretion in dealing with people and things, and partly, above all, from his own very imperfect views of the gospel, Wesley's expedition to Georgia appears to have been a great failure, and he was evidently glad to get away. The ways of God, however, are not man's ways. There was a need for Wesley's two-year absence in America, just as there was for Philip's journey down the desert road to Gaza, Acts 8.26, and Paul's sojourn in prison at Caesarea. If Wesley did nothing in Georgia, he certainly gained a great deal. If he taught little to others, he undoubtedly learned much. On the voyage from England, he became acquainted with some Moravians on board, and was deeply struck by their deliverance from the fear of death in a storm. After landing in Georgia, he continued his fellowship with them, and discovered to his astonishment that there was such a thing as personal assurance of forgiveness. These things, combined with the unique trials, difficulties, and disappointments of his colonial ministry, worked mightily on his mind, and showed him more of himself and the gospel than he had ever learned before. The result was that he landed at Deal, England, on February first, 1, 1738, a very much humbler but a much wiser man than he had ever been before. In plain words, he had become the subject of a real inward work of the Holy Spirit. Wesley's own accounts of his spiritual experience during these two years of his life are deeply interesting. I will provide one or two of them. On February 7, 1736, he recorded, On landing in Georgia, I asked the advice of Mr. Spangenberg, one of the German pastors, with regard to my own conduct. He said in reply, My brother, I must first ask you one or two questions. Have you the witness within yourself? Does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? I was surprised, and did not know what to answer. He observed it, and asked, Do you know Jesus Christ? I paused and said, I know He is the Savior of the world. True, he replied, but do you know He has saved you? I answered, I hope He has died to save me. He only added, Do you know this yourself? I said, I do, but I fear they were vain words. On January 24, 1738, on board ship for his homeward voyage, he wrote the following. I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who will convert me? Who is he who will deliver me from this evil heart of unbelief? I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well and even believe myself while no danger is near. But let death look me in the face and my spirit is troubled, nor can I say that to die is gain. On February first, 1738, the day that he landed in England, he said, It has been two years and almost four months since I left my native country in order to teach the Georgian Indians the nature of Christianity. But what have I learned of myself in the meantime? Why, what I least suspected, that I, who went to America to convert others, was myself never converted to God. I am not irrational, even though I speak in this way, but I speak the words of truth and sincerity. If it is said that I have faith... For many such things have I heard from miserable comforters. I answer that the demons also have a sort of faith, but still they are strangers to the covenant of promise. The faith I want is a sure trust and confidence in God that through the merits of Christ my sins are forgiven, and that I am reconciled to the favour of God. I want that faith that Paul recommends to all the world, especially in his epistle to the Romans. I want that faith that causes everyone who has it to cry out, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Galatians 2.20. I want that faith that no one can have without knowing that he has it. Reports like these are deeply instructive. They teach those important lessons that we are so slow to learn, that we can have a great deal of earnestness and religiousness, without any true soul-saving and soul-comforting religion, that we can be diligent in the use of fasting, prayers, ceremonies, ordinances, and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper without knowing anything of inward joy, peace, or communion with God, and above all, that we can be moral in life and diligent in good works without being true believers in Christ, and without being ready to die and meet God. It would be good for the churches if truths like these were proclaimed from every pulpit and pressed on every congregation. Thousands, for lack of such truths, are walking in a vain shadow and are totally ignorant that they are still dead in sins. If anyone wants to know how far a person can go in outward goodness and yet not be a true Christian, let him carefully study the experience of John Wesley. I am resolute to say, That it is very much truth for the times. Someone hungering and thirsting after righteousness, as Wesley was now, was not left long without more light. The good work that the Holy Spirit had begun in him was carried on quickly after he landed in England, until the sun rose on his mind and the shadows passed away. Partly by discussions with Peter Bowler, a Moravian, and other Moravians in London, partly by study of the Scriptures, and partly by special prayer for living, saving, justifying faith as the gift of God, Wesley was brought to a clear view of the gospel and learned the meaning of joy and peace in simply believing. Let me add, as an act of justice to one of whom the world was not worthy, that at this time John Wesley was, by his own confession, much helped by Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on the book of Romans. This year, seventeen thirty eight, was beyond doubt the turning point in Wesley's spiritual history, and gave a direction to the rest of his life. In the spring of this year he began a religious society at the Moravian Chapel in Fetter Lane, London, which was the rough type and pattern of all Methodist societies formed afterward. The rules of this little society are still around, and, with some additions, modifications, and improvements, contain the inward organization of Methodism in the present day. It was also at this time that he began preaching the new truths he had learned in many of the pulpits in London, and he soon found, like Whitefield, that the proclamation of salvation by grace and justification by faith was seldom allowed a second time. It was in the winter of this year, after returning from a visit to the Moravian settlement in Germany, that he began aggressive measures against unbelief and godlessness at home, and in the neighbourhood of Bristol followed Whitefield's example. By preaching in the open air, in rooms, or wherever people could be brought together. We have now reached the point at which John Wesley's history, like that of his great contemporary Whitefield, becomes one steady, consistent narrative up to the time of his death. It would be useless to dwell on one year more than another. He was always occupied in one and the same business, always going up and down the land preaching, And always conducting evangelistic measures of some kind and description. For fifty three years, from 1738 to 1791, he remained steady on his course, always busy, and always busy about one thing, attacking sin and ignorance everywhere, preaching repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ everywhere, awakening sinners, leading on inquirers, and building up saints. He never wearied never swerved from the path he had marked out, and never doubted of success. Only those who read the journals he kept for fifty years can have any idea of the immense amount of work that he accomplished. Never, perhaps, did anyone have so many irons in the fire at one time and yet succeeded in keeping so many hot. Like Whitefield, he justly regarded preaching as God's chosen instrument for doing good to souls. Therefore, Wherever he went, his first step was to preach. Like Whitefield, too, Wesley was ready to preach anywhere or at any hour, early in the morning or late at night, in church, in chapel, or in a room, in streets, in fields, or in parks. Like him, too, he was always preaching more or less the same great truths sin, Christ, and holiness, ruin, redemption, and regeneration, the blood of Christ and the work of the Spirit. Faith, repentance, and conversion, from one end of the year to the other. Wesley, however, was very unlike Whitefield in one important respect. He didn't forget to organize as well as to preach. He was not content with reaping the fields that he found ripe for the harvest. He took care to bind up his sheaves and gather them into the barn. He was as far superior to Whitefield as an administrator and a man of method as he was inferior to him as a mere preacher. Shut out from the Church of England by the foolishness of its leaders, he laid the foundation of a new denomination with matchless skill and with a rare discernment of the needs of human nature. His goals and objectives were to unite his people as one body, to give everyone something to do, to make each one consider his neighbor and seek his edification, to bring out hidden talent and utilize it in some direction, and, to adopt his quaint saying, to keep all at it and always at it. The system he called into existence was admirably well adapted to carry out his purposes. His preachers, lay preachers, class leaders, group leaders, circuits, classes, groups, love feasts, and watch nights made up a spiritual system that stands to this day, and in its own way can hardly be improved. If one thing more than another has given permanence and solidity to Methodism, it was its founder's masterly talent for organization. It is needless to tell a Christian reader or listener that Wesley had to constantly fight with opposition. The prince of this world will never allow his captives to be rescued from him without a struggle. Sometimes Wesley was in danger of losing his life by the assaults of violent, ignorant, and semi-heathen mobs, as at Westbury, Warsaw, Colne, Shoreham, and Devizes. Sometimes he was denounced by bishops as an enthusiast, a fanatic, and a sower of dissent. Often, far too often, he was preached against and held up to scorn by the local clergy as a heretic, a mischief-maker, and a meddling troubler of Israel. However, none of these things moved him. Calmly, resolutely, and undauntedly he held on his course and in dozens of cases lived down all opposition. His letters in reply to the attacks made upon him are always dignified and sensible, and do equal honor to his heart and head. I have now probably told the listener enough to give him a general idea of John Wesley's life and history. I dare not go further. Indeed, the last fifty years of his life were so entirely of one manner that I do not know where I would stop if I went further. When I have said that they were years of constant travelling, preaching, organizing, conferring, writing, arguing, reasoning, counselling, and warring against sin, the world, and the devil, I have just said all that I dare enter upon. John Wesley died in 1791, in the 88th year of his life, and in the 65th year of his ministry. He died full of honour and respect, and in the perfect peace of the Gospel. He had always enjoyed wonderful health, and hardly ever knew what it was to feel weariness or pain until he was eighty-two. The weary wheels of life at last stood still, and he did not die of any disease, but simply of old age. The way in which he died was in beautiful harmony with his life. He preached within a very few days of his death, and the texts of his two last sermons were remarkably characteristic of the man. His next-to-last sermon was at Chelsea. On February 18, on the words, The King's business requires haste, 1 Samuel 21, 8. His last sermon was at Leatherhead on Wednesday, February 23rd, on the words, Seek the Lord while he may be found, Isaiah 55, 6. After this, he gradually declined, and he died on Wednesday, March 2nd. He kept his senses to the end, and showed clearly where his heart and thoughts were to the very end. Two days before he died, he slept much and spoke little. Once he said in a low but distinct manner, There is no way into the holiest but by the blood of Jesus. He afterward inquired what the words were from which he had preached a little before at Hampstead. Being told they were these, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he replied, That is the foundation, the only foundation. There is no other. The day before he died, he suddenly said, I will get up. While they were preparing his clothes, he broke out in a manner that, considering his weakness, astonished all present, in singing. He sang the hymn written by Isaac Watts, I'll praise my Maker while I have breath, and when my voice is lost in death. Praise shall employ my noblest powers. My days of praise shall never be past, while life and thought and being last, or immortality endures. Not long after, someone entered the room, and Wesley tried to speak, but could not. Finding they could not understand him, he paused a little, and then with all his remaining strength cried out, The best of all is, God is with us! Soon after, Lifting up his dying voice in an indication of victory, and raising his feeble arm with a holy triumph, he again repeated the heart-reviving words, The best of all is, God is with us. The next night he often tried to repeat the aforementioned hymn, but could only utter the opening words, I'll praise, I'll praise. About ten o'clock the next morning he was heard to articulate the word, Farewell, and then without a groan fell asleep in Christ and rested from his labours. Truly this was a glorious sunset. Scripture Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. Numbers twenty three ten. Wesley was once married. At the age of forty eight he married a widow by the name of Mary Molly Fazale, of a suitable age, and of some independent property, which she took care to have settled upon herself. The union was a most unhappy one. Whatever good qualities Mrs. Wesley may have had were buried and swallowed up in the fiercest and most absurd passion of jealousy. One of his biographers remarked, had he searched the whole kingdom, he could hardly have found a woman more unsuitable to him in all important respects. After making her husband as uncomfortable as possible for twenty years by opening his letters, putting his papers in the hands of his enemies in the vain hope of blasting his character, and even sometimes laying violent hands on him, Mrs. Wesley at length left her home, leaving word that she never intended to return. John Wesley simply stated the fact in his journal, saying that he did not know the cause, briefly adding, I did not forsake her, I did not dismiss her, I will not recall her. Like Whitefield, John Wesley left no children, but he left behind him a large and influential communion that he not only saw spring up, but lived to see it attain a vigorous and healthy maturity. At the time of his death, the number of Methodist preachers in the British dominions was 313, and in the United States of America was 198. The number of Methodist members in the British dominions was 76,968, and in the United States was 57,621. Facts like these need no comment, for they speak for themselves. Few laborers for Christ have ever been so successful as John Wesley, and certainly to no one else was it ever given to see so much fruit with his own eyes. John Wesley's Character In taking a general view of this great spiritual hero of the eighteenth century, it may be useful to point out some important points of his character that demand particular attention. When God puts special honor on any of His servants, it is good to analyze their gifts and to observe carefully what they were what then were the specific qualifications that stood out in john wesley we first notice his extraordinary single-mindedness and tenacity of purpose once he embarked on his evangelistic voyage he pressed forward and never flinched for a day one thing i do seemed to be his motto and constraining motive philippians 3:13 To preach the gospel, to labor to do good, and to endeavor to save souls seemed to become his only purpose and the ruling passion of his life. In pursuit of them, he compassed sea and land, putting aside all considerations of ease and rest and forgetting all earthly feelings. Few men but himself could have gone to Epworth, stood upon their father's tombstone, and preached to an open-air congregation, The kingdom of God is not food and drink but righteousness and peace and joy in the holy spirit romans 14:17 few but himself could have seen fellow laborers one after another carried to their graves until he stood almost alone in his generation and yet preached on as he did with unabated spirit as if the ranks around him were still full however his marvelous single-mindedness carried him through it all the man of one thing is the man who in the long run does great things and shakes the world. The next thing I want you to notice about John Wesley is his extraordinary diligence, self-denial, and careful use of time. It almost makes you run out of breath just to read the good man's journals and to see the amount of work that he crowded into one year. He was to all appearance always working, and never at rest. Leisure and I, he said, have taken leave of one another. I propose to be busy as long as I live, if my health is so long indulged to me. This resolution was made in the prime of his life, and never was a resolution more faithfully observed. Lord, let me not live to be useless, was the prayer that he uttered after seeing someone, whom he once knew as an active and useful man, reduced by old age to be a picture of human nature in disgrace, feeble in body and mind, slow of speech and understanding. Even the time that he spent in traveling was not lost. History, poetry, and philosophy, he said, I commonly read on horseback, having other employment at other times. When you met him in the street of a crowded city, he attracted notice not only by his clothes and his long silvery hair, but by his pace and manner, both indicating that all his minutes were numbered and that not one was to be lost. Even though I am always in haste, he said, I am never in a hurry, because I never undertake any more work than I can go through with perfect calmness of spirit. Here again is one secret of great usefulness. We must abhor idleness. We must redeem time. No one knows how much can be done in twelve hours until he tries. It is precisely those who work the most who find that they can do the most. The last thing I want you to notice about John Wesley is his marvellous versatility of mind and capacity for a variety of things. No one probably can fully realize this who doesn't study his wonderful journals or doesn't read the large biographies that record all that he did. Things that are the most opposite and different, things that are the most petty and trifling, things that are the most thoroughly temporal, and things that are the most thoroughly spiritual, all Are alike mastered by his omnivorous mind. He found time for them all, and gives some wisdom about them all. One day we find him condensing old divinity and publishing fifty volumes of theology called the Christian Library. Another day we find him writing a complete commentary on the whole Bible. Another day we find him composing hymns, which live to this day in the praises of many congregations. Another day we find him drawing up detailed directions for his preachers, forbidding them to shout and scream and preach too long, insisting that they regularly read so that their sermons do not become threadbare, forbidding them from drinking alcohol and directing them to get up early in the morning. Another day we find him calmly reviewing the current literature of the day and criticizing all the new books with relaxed and perceptive remarks as if he had nothing else to do. Like Napoleon, Nothing seemed too small or too great for his mind to attend to. Like Calvin, he wrote as if he had nothing to do but write, preached as if he had nothing to do but preach, and administered as if he had nothing to do but administer. A versatility like this is one mighty secret of power, and it is a fascinating characteristic of most men who leave their mark on the world. To be a steam engine and a penknife, a telescope and a microscope, at the same time, is probably one of the highest attainments of the human mind. I would consider my account of John Wesley incomplete if I did not notice the objection that is continually made against him, that he was an Armenian in doctrine. I fully admit the seriousness of this objection. I do not pretend either to explain the charge away or to defend his objectionable opinions. Personally, I feel unable to account for any well instructed Christian holding such doctrines as perfection and the defectiveness of grace, or denying such doctrines as election and the imputed righteousness of Christ. But, after all, we must beware that we do not condemn people too strongly for not seeing all things from our point of view. We must be careful not to excommunicate and anathematize them because they do not pronounce our shibboleth judges 12:6 it is written in god's word why do you judge your brother or why do you set at nothing your brother romans 14:10 we must think and let think we must learn to distinguish between things that are of the essence of the gospel and things that are of the perfection of the gospel we might think that a man preaches an imperfect gospel who denies election considers justification to be nothing more than forgiveness And tells believers in one sermon that they can attain perfection in this life, and in another sermon that they can entirely fall away from grace. But if the same man strongly and boldly exposes and denounces sin, clearly and fully lifts up Christ, and distinctly and openly invites people to believe and repent, will we dare to say that the man does not preach the gospel at all? Will we dare to say that he will do no good? I, for one, cannot. Say so. If I am asked whether I prefer Whitefield's gospel or Wesley's, I answer at once that I prefer Whitefield's. I am a Calvinist, not an Armenian. But if I am asked to go further and to say that Wesley preached no gospel at all and did no real good, I answer at once that I cannot do so. I have no doubt that Wesley would have done better if he could have thrown off his Armenianism, but that he preached the gospel, honoured Christ, and did extensive good. I no more doubt than I doubt my own existence. Let those who disparage Wesley as an Armenian read his own words from the funeral sermon that he preached on the occasion of Whitefield's death. He says of his great fellow labourer and brother, His fundamental point was to give God all the glory of whatever is good in man. In the business of salvation, he set Christ as high and man as low as possible. With this point, he and his friends at Oxford, the original Methodists, so called, set out. Their grand principle was that there is no power by nature and no merit in man. They insisted that all grace to speak, think, or act properly is in and from the Spirit of Christ, and all merit is not in man, however high in grace, but merely in the blood of Christ. So he and they taught. There is no power in man until it is given to him from above to do one good work to speak one good word or to form one good desire for it is not enough to say all people are sick in sin no we are all dead in trespasses and sins and we are all helpless both with regard to the power and the guilt of sin for who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean none less than the almighty who can raise those who are dead spiritually dead in sin none but he who raised us from the dust of the earth but on what consideration will He do this? Not for works of righteousness that we have done. The dead cannot praise You, O Lord, nor can they do anything for which they should be raised to life. Whatever therefore God does, He does it merely for the sake of His well-beloved Son. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He Himself bore all our sins in His own body on the tree. He was delivered for our offences, and He rose again for our justification. This, then, is the sole meritorious cause of every blessing we can or do enjoy, and in particular of our pardon and acceptance with God, and of our full and free justification. But by what means do we become interested in what Christ has done and suffered? Not by works, lest any man should boast, but by faith alone. The Apostle Paul says, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. He also says, To as many as receive Christ, he gives power to become sons of God, even to those who believe in his name who are born not of the will of man, but of God. Except someone is born again in this way, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. But all who are thus born of the Spirit have the kingdom of God within them. Christ sets up his kingdom in their hearts, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That mind is in them which was in Christ Jesus, enabling them to walk as Christ walked. His indwelling Spirit makes them holy in mind and holy in all manner of conduct. But still, since all this is a free gift through the blood and righteousness of Christ, there is eternally the same reason to remember, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. You are not ignorant that these are the fundamental doctrines that Mr. Whitefield everywhere insisted on, and can they not be summed up, as it were, in two terms, the new birth and justification by faith? Let us insist upon these with all boldness, and at all times, in all places, in public and in private. Let us keep close to these good old unpopular doctrines, no matter how many people contradict and blaspheme. Such were the words of the Armenian John Wesley. I make no comment on them, but only say before anyone despises this great man because he was an Armenian, let him take care that he really knows what Wesley's opinions were. Above all, let him take care that he thoroughly understands what kind of doctrines he used to preach in England a hundred years ago.